It's a joy to be able to open up the Word this morning, and I would invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 2, I, I recognize that there are some people here that um, this is your first time, and love to be able to hang out with you afterwards and get to know you. Let me uh, just share with you that when I was young, I had a dream. That dream was to one day go to the MBA. That was my dream. Some people are looking at me like that was never going to happen. But others who saw me play, so oh, yeah, he may have had an opportunity there. But when I was young, um, I also had an interest in another occupation, and that was that of an archaeologist, believe it or not. You say, Dom, that doesn't look like you or sound like you. Well, when I was five years old, I went to my local library in East Los Angeles and started reading books on archaeology. That's, that's definitely not true. The truth is, I saw a movie called Indiana Jones, and Indiana Jones was an archaeologist, and that just looked like a sweet profession. Then I found out what archaeologists really do, and I lost interest very quickly in becoming an archaeologist. But even though I changed my mind about what I wanted to be in the future, I certainly had great respect and appreciation for men and women who would dig up history. You fast forward about 15 years, and Jess and I go to Masters, and then we have an opportunity to go to Israel. And part of that time in Israel, we did a couple of archaeological digs. I never found anything of much interest. But during our study in Israel, we did learn the importance of artifacts and inscriptions. It was all intriguing stuff because it gives you a window into history. And one of the inscriptions that we learned about was found on a government building dating back to 6 BC. So I want to read that to you this morning because of its unique place in Luke's narrative. This is what the inscription says. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year, whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection and giving to us the emperor, Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, he has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God, manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. That's quite an inscription given to Caesar Augustus. In fact, some people actually call this the gospel of Caesar Augustus. For those of you who maybe are unfamiliar with your Roman history, he's the one that ushered in the Pax Romana, the Age of Peace in the Roman Empire. And all would agree that this is a very significant inscription. 
Well, this morning in our text in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, Luke is going to shed some light on that particular inscription. You see, where I'm from in the hood, what we would call that is fighting words. You see, the true gospel proclaims that there's only one king and one sovereign and one ruler and one savior, and Caesar is not it. It is Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to Luke chapter 2, we're, we're putting to rest our discussion about John the Baptist's birth that is behind us now, and we're going to focus all of our attention on Jesus and his birth. And everything that we read here in Luke chapter 2 is unique because Luke is the only one that records it. He's the only one that gives us the intimate details of all that Gabriel said to Mary about the birth of her son. So with that, let's go to Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to give you some exercise right now. I'd invite you again to stand as we read God's word together again. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it happened that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they went in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as was told them. You may have a seat, and please join me as we ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. Father, this is a very, very familiar portion of Scripture, but would you please give us this morning new eyes to see and hearts that are ready and willing and eager 
to not just marvel, to not just be astonished, but to worship, to obey, and to be thoroughly satisfied in our King, Christ, our Lord, the Savior. We pray this in his powerful and precious and majestic and august name. Amen. Here's our main idea this morning, if you're taking notes. And again, it's a little long, but hopefully this uh, encapsulates the 20 verses that we're looking at. Luke's objective in telling this story is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, just like our mission statement. But it's also to help us see the marvelous sovereignty of God as he orchestrates every event to bring about the direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy regarding the divine Savior of the world. This story is magnifying Christ, but it's also pointing to the wonderful sovereignty of God to bring about his holy purposes in bringing us the divine Savior, Jesus Christ. In our outline for today, we've got five major points that we'll just walk through, and it's taken all from the text. First, we're going to look at the sovereign intervention in the first five verses, verses one through five. Then the surprising incarnation in verses six through seven. The significant inclusion in verses eight through 14. Then that'll be followed up by a serious investigation in verses 15 through 17. And then we'll end our time with what we call a sweet illumination in verses 18 through 20. Well, let's begin with the sovereign intervention. The first thing that Luke wants us to understand as he opens up this portion of his narrative is that Jesus' birth takes place in a real history. Luke, like the great historian he is, he, he starts this by setting up the groundwork and saying, look, this is an amazing story, but this is real life. This isn't just some fairy tale it's not some epic or piece of fiction. These are real places. These are real events in real time. And every detail here that's mentioned is there for you to go and verify. In fact, turn over real quickly to Luke chapter 3. We see him do the same thing there in Luke 3 and verse 1. Look at how specific he gets. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Look, if none of that's true, all you had to do was just go check. But Luke is very particular about giving those details. And you say, why all the detail? Well, because he knew people like you and me 2,000 years later would read something like this and say, is that really true? That this whole Jesus thing, is, is this really true? And Luke says here, right from the get-go, look, again, this is not fairy tale. This is legitimate history. You see, the annals of history, they tell us about this Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And many of you know from studying Roman history that this is Gaius Octavius. He was the Caesar from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. 
He was also known as Octavian. And he was the one that was famous for defeating Antony and Cleopatra at Actium. He was the second Caesar behind his great uncle Julius Caesar. And history records that he was probably the one of the, anyway, greatest leaders that we've ever known. We mentioned that he initiated the Pax Romana, which is the golden age of 200 years of peace. And Octavian was so powerful and so well-liked that he was considered not just a great man, but not just a godly man, but a God-man. In fact, there is that inscription that hails him the Savior of the whole world. And if you know anything about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, he's not having it. There's only one God of the universe. And for the Jews who would sometimes be forced to call him Caesar Augustus, that was appalling. Because you don't use that name for anyone but for God. Because that name means supreme. That name means sublime. That name means majestic. And that's very problematic. Because only God fits those descriptions. And it's this Caesar that we come to in Luke chapter 2 that sends out a decree for everyone to be registered. But the beauty as we look at the narrative is that God is behind the scenes, even though not mentioned, but he is the one that sends out a decree for his son to be born. You see, Luke just doesn't mention Caesar's census for its own sake. The reason he references it is because while Caesar is busy wanting to register with a headcount, God, who knows every single hair on every single person's head, is busy registering Jesus into earth to redeem man. So again, these are real people. But it's not just that God is sovereign in the lives of people. He's also sovereign over places and prophecies. Look there at verse 4 in the text. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. No small and insignificant detail. God is sovereignly determining that Jesus be born in Bethlehem. Now, Elizabeth's miraculous conception in her old age is fantastic. Even more fantastic is a virgin, a teenager, who has this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. But none of that means anything if Jesus is born in Nazareth. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because of the prophecy that said that the Messiah would be born where? In Bethlehem. Micah prophesied long ago that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. And so God is going to have to do something something spectacular to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem because they're not currently in Bethlehem. They're in Nazareth. And that's exactly what he does. It's no problem for God to pluck someone up 
and put them exactly where prophecy needs to be fulfilled. And the irony and maybe the comedy of all this is that Caesar Augustus thinks he's the grandmaster controlling the chessboard, when in fact, he's just a pawn in the providence of God, who is determining and sovereignly dictating all these things. And it reminds me, as we think of our own president and our own government, that everything that our rulers and kings do, God is in control ultimately, that he is sovereign Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh, and he turns it wherever he pleases. You see, the Lord, he is working behind the scenes, and he's accomplishing his perfect will in the exact way and in the exact time frame that he wants it. And you just think of this. If God wanted to, he could have easily just chose a young virgin in Bethlehem. But he doesn't do that. He chooses a young virgin in Nazareth. All of this to help both you and I, as we read the story, marvel at the incomprehensible wisdom and providence and sovereignty of Almighty God. Well, in the first five verses, we see God's sovereign intervention. Jesus' birth was nothing to do with fate or chance. God is working his perfect will in the world to bring the world good news with the arrival of his son. And now we go to point number two, the surprising incarnation. There in verses six and seven. Follow along as I read. It says, now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. Now, you shouldn't be too surprised about this incarnation. You say, well, why not? Well, because this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Prophecy after prophecy pointing to the Messiah to be born. But what is a surprise, which should catch us all off guard, is just how unspectacular the arrival of God the Son is. What do I mean by that? Well, First of all, this is a humble city. This is Bethlehem. This is the house of bread. This isn't Jerusalem. This isn't the main hub of the religious epicenter. This is Bethlehem. This is obscure Bethlehem. This isn't Rome. Jesus is born in the backwoods of Bethlehem. But it wasn't just a humble location. It was a humble audience. As you think about the nativity scene, you usually have a lot of people showing up. There's big crowds. The magi are there. The shepherds are there. Everyone's there. That's not what happened. It's a poor woman and a poor man, literally. And we'll see that the announcement of his birth wasn't made to dignitaries and to kings, and there's not a whole lot of fanfare that's going on. It's shepherds who come to see him in the manger. Not only that, but it was humble attire. She wrapped him and cloths. She didn't pull out the royal garments. She didn't have a little baby robe to put onto him and a nice crown for baby Jesus' head. Not only that, but it was a humble accommodation. Look at the text. It says, he was laid in the manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. And we can read that over and over again. And again, it's familiar to you, but your mind has to be blown. 
when we just consider the sovereignty of God in bringing a girl from Nazareth to Bethlehem and in orchestrating all the prophecies coming to fruition, and here when we read about the accommodations of the Son of God, he's in a manger. Think about that. God is in heaven. He's orchestrating all these world events. He's moving countless people to be exactly where he wants them to be. And when it's time for the baby to be delivered, there's not even a guest room. And you say, well, what's up with that? If God is all-powerful, if God is sovereign and in control of everything, Not one person was willing to get off their butt with a pregnant girl and offer up their room. And it makes people ask the question, did did somehow, some way, did God run out of power, of magic? Did God drop the ball? And the answer to that, obviously, is no. Absolutely not. If God wanted to, he could have provided Mary and Joseph with a luxurious place to have this baby, like at Chomp, where our three kids were born, and it doesn't feel like a hospital. It's like a hotel. It's comfortable. It's warm. Nurses are very friendly. you got decent meals. If God wanted to, he could provide that for them, but he doesn't. And it makes us ask the question, why was Jesus born in a barn? Why was he born in a barn? Listen, there's no slip up in the agenda here. This isn't God's plan B. No, we need to marvel, church, at the fact that God is stooping very, very low. That's what's going on here. You you heard Pastor Scott mention Jonathan and Becky They had their baby this week. Praise the Lord for precious baby Winslow. We give thanks for healthy delivery, a healthy mom, a healthy baby, hopefully a healthy sleeping dad. But, But just to be clear, as we think about baby Winslow being born, what if Becky had to give birth in a barn? Ladies, have you considered this? When you gave birth to your son or your daughter, what would that be like to give birth in a barn? And just to be clear, the word manger here is a feeding trough. So instead of a a cozy crib, imagine laying your baby, brand new baby, into a filthy feeding trough. This is a stinky stable. It's not a cozy hospital. You know, our nativity scenes are are so cute and they're so clean and the animals come and they just kind of caress themselves up next to baby Jesus and they're licking him and it's this cute scene, but the reality is that this was very crude. It's not cuddly. Not at all. The reality was that God entered the universe in one of the most unsanitary situations. There is dirt. There is duty. And there is disgusting smells. And look, I don't, I don't want to belabor this, but I just want us to get a real picture of what was taking place. There would have been the smell of birth. 
mixed with a stench of manure and urine. Remember, this is a worldwide census. Everyone is coming to Bethlehem, which means that all the donkeys and animals are there. So it's not just packed with people, it's packed with animals. And atop that off is the stench of what we can say is scandal. Because the detail in the text is that they're betrothed. They're not even married. And here she's pregnant. And so everything about this story screams humiliation and embarrassments. And we, when we sing our songs, we say, silent night. And that's not what it was. Let me, let me read to you the lyrics of Andrew Peterson, who wrote probably a more accurate song called Labor of Love. This is what he wrote. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. Noble Joseph by her side, callous hands and weary eyes. There were no midwives to be found on the streets of David's town in the middle of the night. And so he held her and he prayed. Shafts of moonlight on his face, shades of moonlight on his face, but the baby in her womb he was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that could make the mountains move. For little Mary, full of grace, with her tears upon her face, it was a labor of love. I think that's the beautiful reality of what took place that night. You see, everything that we know about the birth of Jesus points to obscurity and indignity and pain and turmoil, and also rejection. And listen, don't let the familiar story keep you from realizing that this is how God entered our universe. When people begin to say things like, God doesn't love me, he doesn't care for me, he doesn't know what I'm going through, all you have to do is transport your mind back to this scene. I'm right there with Martin Luther when he says this. He says, when I'm told that God became man, I can follow the idea, but I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? God laid upon Christ the iniquities of us all. This is that ineffable and infinite mercy of God, which the slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend, and much less utter. That unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love toward us, who, Martin Luther says, can sufficiently declare this exceedingly great goodness of God. Look, apart from the crucifixion, the resurrection, this is the most epic event in all of history. 
the God-man came to earth. And you would expect with this kind of news that there would be loads and loads of detail and, and eloquent descriptions of what takes place. And Luke gives us two verses. That's it. The God of the universe is born in our world and two verses. You say, well, maybe there's more in the other Gospels. And no, there's not. Matthew says, Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. And that's all we get. Mark and John, they, they don't even give us a description of the birth narrative. I mean, you would think the Son of God has come to the earth. Where's the pomp and circumstance? Where, where's the celebration from the people? And it is curiously absent. You see, it's because the writers, Scripture, God himself, the Holy Spirit, doesn't want us focusing so much on the how or the where, but the why. Why would God come to the earth like this? We've looked at the sovereign intervention, the surprising incarnation. Now, let's turn our attention to verse 8 to the significant inclusion. It says here in verse 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And again, I think most of us just assume, okay, we know why the shepherds were called upon. Uh, why were the shepherds the ones who got this announcement? Well, was it because Jesus himself was the good shepherd? And that certainly holds some weight. But think of all the people the angels could have appeared to. Or what we think maybe they should have appeared to. Like the Sanhedrin, where business is done, religious business. Or to the priest. But instead of the Sanhedrin, it's shepherds. Instead of the priests, it's pastors out on the field. And we have to ask the question, why is that? Maybe it's because shepherds are the ones who have the responsibility of heralding the news to the people of God. That certainly is true. But before you romanticize the way I did this whole idea of shepherds, you have to go back and understand that in ancient Near East culture, shepherds don't actually have a good reputation. They don't. Yes, there were some good, but a lot of them were bad. Today, we have a relatively favorable view of shepherds, but when you think about the shepherds during that time, they were looked down upon socially in Jesus' day. Their work made them ceremonial unclean, and they had a reputation, a bad reputation, for being untrustworthy. Many commentators that I read pointed out that their testimony wouldn't even hold true in court because they could not be trusted. And so the fact that the angelic announcement was made to shepherds should ask us the question, why? And here's the answer. Because the shepherds are the lowest of the low. And you are the lowest of the low. That's why. Because as God reveals himself to these shepherds, he wants to reveal himself to the common man, to the people at the bottom of the totem pole. Because they're not cultured, they're not sophisticated. They're living in obscurity. They live and smell like animals. And God wants us to recognize we're no better. 
We are no better. That's the point. Jesus came to this earth for the lowest of low people. The Bible is very clear. He didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the what? For the sick. He didn't come to save the holy, but the heathen. He didn't come to save the proud. He came to save the humble. Well, what was the angel's message to the shepherds? Look there at verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord stood before him, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. I love this response. And the Greek uh, is a lot more emphatic. They were terribly frightened. Literally, it says they feared a great fear. This is a, a double fear, an overwhelming fear. And you say, well, this wasn't an everyday occurrence. You just don't tend the sheep, and then angels pop up out of nowhere. But this angel in the dark pops out of nowhere, and we don't have this image of a, a shepherd. They're, they're, they're strong guys. They know what's up. They're, they've been in the dark. They, they fend off wolves and, and thieves and robbers. But this absolutely terrifies them. And so the angel has to quiet the fears. And look what he says in verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people. And we're going to have to park right here for a second because of the significance of what the angel says. And again, we know this. Some of us have memorized this. But look at the significance of the announcement. Verse 11, For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And those three titles are what distinguish Christianity from every other religion of the world. Jesus is Savior. Yahweh saves. And the natural question that you and I should ask is, what does he save from? Well, what does he rescue from? What does he deliver from? And you say, well, he saves from sin, and that is right. And you say, well, he saves us from Satan and condemnation, and that is also right. But what did Jesus or who did Jesus come to save us from? From God. God alone is the giver and taker of life. God alone is the judge. And Jesus came for this very reason, to save us from God's righteous and holy wrath. You see, the title Savior assumes that there is a need. And the need is offensive to people. I was at the gym not too long ago, and a fight almost broke out. This is why the fight almost broke out, because there was a young man, probably a teenager, at the bench press. And uh, he, he wasn't lifting a ton of weight. And so a guy comes over and says, hey, bud, you need a spot? Now, maybe those of you that work out quite a bit understand this, but it's not very nice. What's the assumption there? The assumption is you can't lift that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have asked you if you needed a spot. 
Well, the same is true for the title Savior. It's offensive to anyone who thinks they don't need saving. I often hear people say that they've got a major issue with God. Actually, I remember shortly after I was saved that my neighbor in East L.A., we sat down and I began to share the gospel with him. And he said, look, I've got a real problem with this God of yours. He was a police officer. And he didn't like the fact that God forgives people. And what he said was, look, I've seen a lot. Every day, every night, I encounter rapists, burglars, murderers, drug dealers, prostitutes, lowlifes. They should not be forgiven. I think you've probably encountered people with a very similar attitude. But listen, my neighbor's problem was not that he had a problem with God. The real problem is that God has a problem with him. Just like God has had a problem with all of us. That's the real trouble. The real trouble is that we can't accept God. That's not true. The real trouble is that God cannot accept us the way that we are. God is holy, infinitely holy, infinitely pure, infinitely perfect, and we are not. And so you see, we become the problem because we cannot stand in God's eyes. And so what does God do to remedy this problem, to solve this problem, to fix this trouble? You know what he does? He sends his son 2,000 years ago as a baby in the manger to fix this problem, to show us the depth of our sin, the greatness of our need for salvation, and to remind us that he is the Savior, that he saves from a real and present danger Church, this morning, the Lord wants us to appreciate God's saving work, to never forget what you've been saved from. Whether you were converted at 20 or 40 or 4, you deserved hell and judgment, and God has graciously, wonderfully saved you. He was crucified so that you wouldn't be condemned. He poured out his blood so that you would not be punished. He himself was judged so that you would have joy. He justifies the ungodly so that we're not swept away in judgment. Every morning we've been reading 1 John, and every time I come to chapter 4, I am just so amazed at 1 John 4.10. This is what 1 John 4.10 says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus alone appeases God's wrath against us. He alone spares us from judgment. Church, we need to know this message and proclaim this message. This is the only message that saves. No one else, nothing else saves. It doesn't matter what the world tells you. Money can't save. Mary can't save. Mohammed can't save, Mormonism doesn't save, monasticism doesn't save, 
There is only one who is mighty enough to save, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does Jesus possess a saving name, but there is something supernatural about the name Christ. Mashiach, Messiah. That means that he's anointed by God. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and gave a special anointing. And this long-promised one, this, this son of David, is the one that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish all of God's work as prophesied. He has a saving name. He's the Savior. He has a supernatural name. He is the Christ. But look there, he's also sovereign. He's given the name Lord. We love to call Jesus Savior. We love that. But you know that in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, Jesus is rarely referred to as the Savior. Well, we say it all the time. But there's only two places in the Gospels that Jesus is referred to as the Savior. Here in Luke, and there's one time in John, John chapter 4, after he has that meeting with the woman, they come back and they say, look, we, we believe not because of your testimony, but because we've seen for ourselves that this one is truly the Savior of the world. The overwhelming majority of times Jesus is referred to, it's with the title Lord, which means that he is the master, he is the ruler, he's the king, he's the one with the right to rule. That title has already been used almost 20 times in Luke chapter 1, most of them to talk about Yahweh, God of Israel, but here it is Jesus. And listen, the grand purpose of all three of these titles, these descriptions, they serve a threefold purpose. First, they help establish Jesus' credentials. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. But secondly, these titles put Caesar and every other ruler in the rightful place because Caesar can't save. Caesar is not divine. He died and he's buried and he'll be raised to be judged. But thirdly, these titles are intended to make us scratch our head and keep driving home the question, why was Jesus born in such an anticlimactic way? Let's keep reading. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you, the angel says. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And this sign serves as confirmation for the shepherds, but it also helps them to get a sense of the Savior's humble circumstances. See, what Luke is doing here is he's really setting the stage for the rest of the gospel. Because throughout the rest of Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus is one that is truly humble, that he is a servant, that he is serving mankind. And it's precisely this unfathomable descent of humility that propels him up and up and up to great exaltation. And that's what the angel makes clear in verses 13 and 14. It says this, And suddenly there appeared with that single angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The, the proclamation begins with one angel. Gabriel, maybe, we don't know, probably. But after the single angel the shepherds look and in the dark sky. What they see is the army of God shining bright in that night sky. 
and they're belting out glory to God in the highest. The the last time we encountered something like this was Isaiah 6 with the seraphim proclaiming holy, holy, holy. And now the angels, myriads upon myriads of the army of God, proclaiming glory to God in the highest. And there's so many amazing things, but let me just point out two of them. First, notice how excited the angels are to proclaim that Jesus is born. And think with me for a second. Do the angels need redemption? Do the angels need to be saved? No, these are the angels that didn't fall. They they didn't join Satan in the rebellion. They don't need salvation. But the angels are exuberant with joy because Christ the Savior is born. And let me just encourage you, challenge you. Don't let the angels outdo you in praising God. You say, well, how is that possible? They're in heaven, they're perfect. Yeah, but an angel will never know what it means to dishonor and disregard and sin against God and then be forgiven and then be made righteous by the blood of Christ. Jesus didn't die for the angels. He died for us. Don't let the angels outdo us in giving glory and praise to God. But second, I want you to notice something, that this is actually an army. That's what host means. This is an army of angels, and they're speaking peace. And I mention that because we need to understand that in order for there to be peace, there had to be war. In order for there to be peace, there had to be war. Remember when Jesus was being arrested and Peter takes out his little knife, wants to chop off heads, and Jesus says, no, no, no. If I wanted to, I can call thousands upon thousands of angels to come and fight. Listen, church, we need to understand that this is a spiritual war. And Jesus, when he arrived, that is God waging war on our enemy, coming to crush the head of the serpents, which means you don't contribute to that fight. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, there's that scene where little Merry and Pippin, Boromir gets killed, and they get all mad, and they want to avenge, and they pull out their little tiny swords, and they go run in with a war scream, and the Urukai just pick them up and just run off with them. That is us if we are trying to fight a spiritual war on our own. No, our power, our authority, our victory comes from Jesus Christ, not ourselves, not our righteousness. Listen, if you're here today and you have not been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, you can never know the peace that the angels are proclaiming here. There's two types of peace in the Bible, one objective, one that's subjective. We need to have peace with God through salvation in Jesus Christ. And when we have that peace, when we experience that kind of peace, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, covers us until we go home to glory. But listen, the only way that peace comes is if we recognize 
that the humble Savior requires humility on our part, that we actually need saving, that we need to call out to him in faith and repentance. And I love this. The text talks about them praising the heavenly host praise God. And that, that word there for praise is not the generic word that we come across, but it is the word that we see in the book of Revelation. Turn real quickly to Revelation chapter 19. Again, lots of words for praise, but the one used here is the same we see, Revelation 19 and verse 5. And it says this, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. All you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great crowd and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the mighty, the almighty reigns. And what we see in Luke chapter 2, 13 and 14 is a preview of what you and I get to experience in heaven where all of us are singing the song of victory and praise, hallelujah, to our God. Listen, there's a lot that the Bible says about peace. Jesus brings that peace. The question for you is, do you have that peace? Well, we've seen God's sovereign intervention, his surprising incarnation, this significant inclusion. Let's look now at the serious investigation. Verse 15, And it happened that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And I don't want to belabor this point, but here, here is the point. The shepherds waste no time. There's no hesitation this news is announced, it's proclaimed to them, and they go discover the truth for themselves. I think the Lord wants us to consider. The gospel news has come to us. We've heard the proclamation. We know what the good news is. And the question for you is, what are you doing with the good news? What are you doing with the good news? Uh, this past Friday, with the high school group, I was talking about the qualifications for an elder pastor in the church. And one of those qualifications is to have a good reputation with outsiders. And I, and I picked on someone. I picked on Olivia. And I said, Olivia, if your friends knew that you were a Christian, but you never shared the gospel, what does that say about your Christianity? And I walked away from that. I said, well, that was a, that was a good challenge right there. And then shortly after, I asked myself that and said, hmm, do the people in my area, the gym, school, neighborhood, do they know that I care about their souls because I'm proclaiming this gospel message? Do people know that you care about their souls? They'll know that not just by hosting them and feeding them, they'll know that by your pleading and praying and compelling them to turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. That's what these shepherds do. They go and they proclaim the news. Look at verse 17. 
When they had seen this, they had made known the statements which had been told to them about this child. They believe this belief manifests itself in action, that action is proclamation, and they go and proclaim this good news. God's sovereign intervention, his surprising incarnation, the significant inclusion, the serious investigation, and finally, the sweet illumination. Look there at verse 18. Notice the reaction. It says there, And all who heard it, they marveled at the things that were told them by the shepherds. And you say, this is a good reaction, isn't it? That they're marveling, that they're amazed. And we can say, maybe, if the amazement leads to worship, then it's great amazement. But if their amazement stops short there, if their marveling stops short there, then it's deficient. Steve Lawson says, where there is no wonder, there is no worship. Where there is no wonder, there is only cold, dead, clinical orthodoxy. Where there is no wonder, there is lukewarmness. There is callousness. Where there is no wonder, there's only yawning at the preacher. We need to wonder, but that wonder must lead to worship. And as we move throughout Luke's gospel, we'll see this over and over again. People marvel. People are amazed. Jesus' teaching and his healing and his ministry and his love and his compassion. And everyone is wondering at how great Jesus is. But not everyone is bowing the knee to King Jesus in faith and repentance. If you stop at just marveling, you will make a huge mistake. You can marvel at him and still miss him entirely. So while the people are marveling, Luke draws out this contrast. Look at it at verse 19. It says, but, strong contrast, but Mary was treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. The people were amazed. Mary's amazement is much different. It says here she's treasuring. Uh, Even a better translation is she's keeping this safe. She's internalizing. She's memorizing. She's musing on everything that has been communicated to her about her son. How many people today are amazed and wonder at Jesus, but it never goes beyond intrigue? John MacArthur says, from the very beginning, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ caused people to marvel and be amazed. But unfortunately then, as now, much of that amazement produced no commitment, but merely curiosity. When the shepherds heard the good news of the Savior's birth, they immediately sought after him. But all that is said of those to whom they witnessed is that they wondered. After their initial amazement wore off, most of them probably just went on their, li- on their own lives as if nothing had ever happened. But look, Mary's much different, and so are the shepherds. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as was told them. In verses 13 and 14, all the angels in heaven are praising and glorifying God. And listen, church, this is our proper response, to join the angels, 
to marvel at the great salvation that God wrought by sending his son, the king of the universe, to this earth in obscurity, in a manger, to lowly parents, announcing it to lowly shepherds, but all of that as a reminder that you, sinner, are lowly and desperate and in need, and Jesus has come for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we uh, cannot stand here impressed with ourselves that we have some way, somehow figured this out. But Lord, a, a study like this, a text like this, a meditation on these truths should cause us to bend the knee of our hearts, to recognize that we are filthy, that our righteousness, as great as we might think it is, your word tells us it's like filthy rags. And we don't deserve you. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve justification. We don't deserve reconciliation. God, but all these things come to us as a precious and gracious gift. Lord, you who did not spare your own son but delivered him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, Lord Jesus, we are stunned. We want to be amazed, flabbergasted at the fact that Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. Would you please help us never to get so used to this story and so used to these truths that we become apathetic and bored. But Lord, ignite our hearts, excite our hearts to respond in faith, and gratitude, and joy, and that we would go and proclaim this truth Father, we are thankful for our time this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.